Welcome to City Talk, a podcast from City View Church in Northern Virginia. City View is a church for all ages and all nations. We offer to everyone the hope, healing, and help that is found in Jesus Christ. As the moral direction of our culture continues to move further from any Christian moorings it had, how should we respond? Biblical Christianity is no longer seen as respectable to many. So how can we make a difference for good when the culture's attitude toward Christianity is increasingly antagonistic? The answer itself may be surprising. We'll get some wisdom from an ancient letter in the book of Jeremiah. God willing, in 28 days, this will be me. Not here in the city, but uh, flashing up any second. That will be me in 28 days. Um, I love going to the beach. Not like I'm counting the days till I get there. Uh, beach is just my happy place. I love the sounds of the waves crashing. I love the sand at my feet. There's just something that is automatically relaxing about being near the beach. Now, one of the things I love to do, and I have loved doing since I'm a little kid, is body surfing. And body surfing is awesome. You kind of, you look for the wave, you try to catch it, and then let it take you in. And after riding a few of these waves, you start feeling like, I'm pretty good at this. And so you start looking for the biggest wave you can find. And inevitably, every vacation, I will catch you, or rather, the wave will catch me, and I'll get all discombobulated and turned upside down and smashed around, just kind of like clothes in a washing machine. I'll go all over the place, sand all over me, in me. And it's disorienting, and you stagger up like this. It's a very disorienting thing when a wave gets a hold of you and you lose control. What is happening in our society, our culture around us, is disorienting. All around us, things are changing. Moral standards are shifting far and fast. Some would say that we are in the midst of a moral revolution, And a moral revolution is defined like this, when in a short order of time, what was condemned is now celebrated. And what was celebrated gets mocked. And then the final phase of a moral revolution is that when you don't celebrate what is now popular during the day, you will be condemned. Religious freedom and sexual freedom are more and more at odds with one another. Christianity is falling out of favor in our culture. And this is Pride Month. Some of you in your jobs may even have been asked to do or to attend certain training sessions that you say, this conflicts with my Christian convictions. So what do we do? Does the Bible give us any guidance for situations and times like these? The answer is yes. In an ancient letter found in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, you can turn there. This is not the first time in history that God's people have found themselves swimming against the current of popular culture. But what are we to do? I'm just going to read to you part of the contents of this letter, and we'll work our way through it. Jeremiah chapter 29, I'm starting in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, 
the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Chapam, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And this is what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." It's important that we understand the context that this is given in. The first several verses of this passage are names that are maybe difficult for us to pronounce in our culture, but it's very important that they're there because this is an actual letter written to actual people in actual historical events. This is not an abstract philosophical or religious document. It's around 600 BC, and the Jewish nation has seen their world come tumbling down all around them. It's disorienting. The Babylonians, the biggest power in the world at the time, conquered them and took them into exile. And the Babylonian strategy was, first of all, to take those people they considered essential personnel, the craftsmen, the people who lead culture, the political leaders, the religious leaders. They were taken out of Jerusalem and exiled 700 miles away to Babylon, which is in present-day Iraq. Exile. Exile is when you're somewhere that you don't want to be and there's nothing you can do about it. When you're exiled, things are out of sync. You're not in control. And when we're in times like this, we need hope and we need guidance. And God knows that. And he cares about us more than we can imagine. It was into this setting that God wrote them a letter. This is a personal letter from the God of the universe to his people who are suffering, who are scratching the head saying, what's going on here? We thought we worshiped the God of the universe and we've been taken over. And we've been taken into exile. We don't want to be here. These people have different customs from us, different habits, different ways of living. This is not fun. What's going on? Has God let us down? Is God not as powerful as we thought he was? What's the deal? Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's all we need to know right there. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts literally means the God who leads the angel armies, the most powerful being in the universe. You see, in ancient days, when one country would take over another, the assumption was that their idols, their gods, were bigger and badder and better than the, the defeated company's gods. And so many of God's people were probably thinking, 
maybe we ought to worship the Babylonian gods. Maybe they had it right after all, and we're worshiping the wrong God. God is reminding his people, I am the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. I am all-powerful. And then he says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God says, I know what I'm doing. You are there for a reason. And the reason that the Jewish nation was put into exile is because they were doing the wrong thing. They were following other idols. They had the God of the universe, yet they were chasing after everything else. They had gotten distracted. And God said, you need to have your attitudes adjusted. You need to know what really matters, who is most important, and who you ought to be worshiping. So I am going to give you what you think you want. And what they thought they want was all the stuff the Babylonians had. And it wasn't real pleasant. But God sent them into exile. So God, right off the bat in this letter, reminds his people, I am the Lord of the universe. I'm in charge. And I'm in control, and I put you there for a reason. And in a sense, every Christ follower, every Christian is in exile because we are not in our heavenly home. Things aren't as they ought to be in this world. This world is not our ultimate home. That is the city yet to come, and we'll talk about that next week. That is what we're living for. That is our home. But today, we're in exile. It feels more and more like we're not in control. Society is actually hostile to Christianity in the public square. It's no longer respectable to say, well, I go to such and such a church, or I'm involved in this Christian organization. That won't get you very far in today's world. Things are turning around. It's disorienting for a Christian. So what should we do? You're expecting some super profound, awesome spiritual advice, and this is what God tells his people. I put you in exile. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Wait, what? God. No, no, no. God, I'm asking you to throw lightning down and squash the bad guys. But that's not what God does. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What God is telling his people, when the world around us is scrambled, when it's disorienting for God's people, is stay calm and carry on. Keep calm, carry on, live a normal life. No one benefits when Christians get hysterical about the world's going crazy. What, what, what? No one benefits from that. God is saying, remember what I said at the beginning of the letter. I'm the Lord of hosts. I put you there. God has put us here in our culture, right here, right now, for such a time as this. Keep calm and carry on. But what does this look like? What is keep calm and carry on? I think it's significant that right off the bat, God addresses the home here. 
He says, live normal lives at home. Live as normal citizens in the world. I believe that this means establishing distinctively Christian households. You see, for decades, church-going people could kind of function, and that was pretty much the norm in our society. It no longer is. And so we're having to think, what does it mean to establish a distinctly Christian household? It means a home where the calendar and the routines scream out, Jesus Christ is Lord. It means a calendar and routines which say, God is our priority in this home. The people and the culture that we immerse ourselves in are going to have influence on us. We all have TVs, computers in our home, and it's important to know what's going on in the world around us. But sadly, too many of us are experts on the latest show on TV or or a comedy series or whatever it might be, but we don't know the Word of God very well. We need to be homes where Christ is at the center of attention, where we naturally talk about Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul referenced Pastor Jason earlier today, and I know that Jason talks with his kids regularly about the Lord and Scripture. It should be a part of our normal routine at home. We must establish distinctly Christian homes. The second thing I'd say is this, homeschool, homeschool children. And when I say homeschool children, I'm not saying school them entirely at home. I believe it's healthy for a congregation to have people in the public schools, in the private schools, and in the homeschools. So when I say homeschool, what I'm talking about is parents, we need to know what our children are hearing during the day. And we need to be able to address it with them at home. In the public schools, where three of my kids have gone all straight through public school, they will hear things like evolution. They will hear things that contradict what the Bible has to say on many issues in life. Parents, we need to help our children engage with these issues. I am not advocating hide your children, take them away from this, because that really isn't going to solve the problem. Wherever our children are in school, whether it's public, private, or homeschooled, parents need to be engaged in the education. We need to be able to have conversation with our children and give them wise answers when our children have questions about, I'm hearing in school that the monkey and I are distant cousins. We need to be able to respond in a way so that not only do our children children understand the truth, but they're able to articulate the truth and stand up for it. That's part of being a distinctly Christian home. We want to be homes where our children are free and comfortable to talk about their questions and their doubts. I want my children to say, this didn't make any sense. I just read this in the Bible. How can this be? Because that contradicts what I'm hearing elsewhere. Or I'm doubting God's goodness. I hope that in our homes, we have enough of a relationship with our children that they can express their fears, doubts, concerns, and questions for us. Knowing that as their parents, we'll put an arm around our shoulder, we'll walk with them towards the truth. No child should ever fear getting, what, you believe this in your homes? We need to homeschool our children. And that means 
being involved in the education process wherever your child is during the day. That's between you and the Lord. A Christian home also needs to practice generosity and hospitality. We live in an era when people may have a zillion Facebook friends, but very few flesh and blood friends. Christians, we can make a massive difference for good by having our homes open to the community. May our homes be the homes where the kids in the community love to hang out. And maybe they might knock a few things over and scuff the walls. That's fine. Let's be homes where our communities feel welcome. Let's give to our communities what they're not giving to themselves. A distinctly Christian home makes a huge difference. And just as the, the nation of Judah was in exile 600 B.C., we're getting to be in exile today. So let's keep calm, carry on. Establish distinctly Christian homes. The letter goes on like this in the beginning of verse 7. And it says, Seek, but seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile. That word welfare, in some Bible translations, it might say seek the good of the city. The word that's actually used there is shalom, the traditional Jewish word for peace. But it means much more than peace. It's a state of blessedness, of everything being as it ought to be in place. Seek the goodness, the shalom, the blessedness of where you are. Christians should be at the forefront of seeking to make our communities better so they can experience some of what God wants so that they might turn towards Him. Seek the shalom of the city you are in. And I think as Christians, when we have that theme of keep calm and carry on, the best thing I can say for us to work for the shalom of our city is to love our neighbor and to do a good job on our job. Love our neighbors and be good workers. When you love your neighbors, you're fulfilling what Jesus said was the second most important commandment. And it's just barely right after the top one of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Love your neighbor, but then also work well. Be a good worker. Because as people around us lose motivation for doing their jobs because they're seeing that, you know, I can get more money, I can get more stuff, and it's really not satisfying. A sense of apathy creeps in there. But when Christians stand out, that makes a difference. Loving our neighbors means taking a genuine interest in our neighbor. Seek to get to know them. Even if you disagree with everything they think about politics or, or any issue, Seek to get to know your neighbor. Care genuinely about them. When you're on the job, have a conscious awareness that I am here doing what I am doing for the glory of God. And it could be I am here mopping floors for the glory of God. I am here designing computer circuits. I'm here doing accounting. Whatever it is, I'm doing it for the glory of God. And our prayer throughout the day ought to be, Lord, as I go about today, would you help me to point others towards you? God told his people 
to prepare for exile for the long term. He talked about multiple generations, about sons and daughters and so on. We need to play the long game. And that means we love our neighbors, we work well, even when it's like, I'm not seeing immediate fruit from this. God says, love your neighbor, work well. The early church was told this, early Christians in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands just as we instructed you. Did he catch that first word? Aspire. Aspire to a normal, boring life. But when you're doing it for the glory of God, God can do things that are amazing, greater than you could ask or imagine. But he does call you to say, I'm going to be faithful in what God has entrusted to me. And the job that you are doing is what God has entrusted to you. And he calls you to do it well. You know, later on in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Peter, um, it's a letter from Peter to the Christians scattered all over the Middle East. And he starts it with, to the elect exiles. So this is back in the first century, and he's still saying, Christians, you're living in exile. Things are disorienting. The culture operates by standards that don't align with Scripture. This is how you are to live. When he wrote this letter, he was going to be executed in a little while by Nero. Christianity was not cool or popular. The political leadership at the time was corrupt and immoral. Nero tried to blame all the problems of the Roman Empire on the Christians. And so what does the Bible tell Christians to do in these situations? 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, and I'll just read this to you. I don't think I have it up in the slides. Be subject for the Lord's sake. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, not just those you agree with, not just those which make you feel good, but to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put silence, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The world around you is going to mock you for following Christ. Christian principles, Christian morality does not align with our world's morality right here, right now. But the will of God for us, for such a time as this, is that we would do good and put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then he continues in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is what he told people whose world had been disoriented. Love the brotherhood. As a culture around us becomes more and more anti-Christian, we need each other more than ever. We need each other. We need to be a respite for one another on Sunday mornings, 
in life groups, in any other gatherings. Guys, it's so important that we're connected to each other. Sunday mornings, love to see everyone here. But get engaged in a life group. Women, you've got the connect groups coming up this summer. Great way to stay tied in together. We need each other. We need to be praying for one another, encouraging one another. Fear God. That means worship Him above all else. He is our main priority, and that ought to be reflected in our homes, just as the letter that Jeremiah sent said. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. You know, in some ways, I think social media is one of the worst things that's ever happened because some of the things that Christians will post, it's an embarrassment to the gospel. If your guy is not the one sitting in the White House, don't send out the memes saying how silly he is or foolish he is or anything like that. Can you imagine a world where we're in Christians, if the government does something we disagree with, actually wrote an intelligent response and offered a better solution? Let's not behave as the world does. Whether or not our guy is in the White House, honor the emperor. We shouldn't be making fun of anyone. Seek the welfare of the city to which we've been exiled. Seek the shalom of things. The way we behave ought to contribute towards the shalom of the culture around us. Verse 7 continues like this. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. We ought to daily be praying for Northern Virginia, for our country. Well, what do I pray beyond, okay, Lord, bless Northern Virginia, bless our country? Here's an idea. 1 Timothy chapter 2 starts out like this. First of all, then, this is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That has echoes of the letter back in Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy. He thought he was God himself. And you read the book of Daniel, you see that God dealt with him. But it doesn't say that this command is conditional based on if it's your guy in the White House or not. Pray for the leadership in our nation and at the local level. I think it's also important that we pray for people around us that they would come to salvation. That is the greatest good that can happen to anyone. You know, I, I love that, that line in The Incredibles where um, Frozone's wife says to him, I'm the greatest good that ever happened to you. But the greatest good that can happen to any of us around here is that they come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to regularly be praying for that end. But here's the thing, I find that in church circles, our default mode is inward. We'll turn in towards each other, and it is kind of warm and comfortable. We should turn into one another and comfort and strengthen and encourage each other. I'm now going to follow that with and, not but. And we also need to look outwards 
Because that's why we're City View. We want to have our eyes on the city around us and be praying that people come to salvation. When our small groups meet, we ought to have a regular list of people that we're praying for for their salvation. And wouldn't it be fantastic if at the end of the year you review and you see, wow, God did some amazing things. But so often we don't even think about that. So often we'll talk about how we can pray for one another and our aches and pains, and that's good. And we should do that. And we should also have our hearts and our minds set on those who are outside, pray that they come to Christ. That is the greatest good that will ever happen to them. And then another thing is I find is what we're praying about is what's really on our mind. If you're not praying for people's salvation, it's not on your mind. But when you're praying for them, that's on your mind. And I think you'll be amazed that when you encounter these people, whether it be in the lunchroom at work, whether it be walking down the street in your neighborhood, when you've been praying for them and, and they're on your mind, you might just have a gospel conversation with them. That's an awesome way to live. The gospel conversations flow out of what's on your mind. It's not contrived, it's not forced or anything like that. So why do we do all this? Verse 7 continues. For in its welfare, you will find your shalom. For in the city's shalom, you will find your shalom. God is saying, you are connected to where you live. Now, I know that our home, our ultimate home is heaven. We're going to talk about that next week. And heaven isn't what you think it is. It's a lot better. But for now, we're connected with the city that we live in. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. A rising tide lifts all boats. When Christians are an indispensable asset to their community, amazing things will happen. You know, sometimes we get preoccupied with what we see on social media or what we see on the headlines in the news. And as Christians, you can go, oh man, it's bleak. But when you're on the ground and you hear what's quietly going on behind the scenes, it's like, man, God is at work all around us. God is opening opportunities to share the gospel. God is granting favor in different places for his people. And guys, that's what we need to be about. We need to be people who are an indispensable asset to our community. Right here, corporately, at City View, in this community, but also out in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. That is what it means to be salt and light. That's what Jesus called us to be. The letter continues, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but just so you know, the letter continues, and God tells his people, don't listen to the false prophets out there. You're going to spend 70 years here because there was a bunch of people saying, a bunch of guys claiming to be prophets saying, we're going to lead Israel. We're going to make everything right. God says, don't listen to them. It's going to be the long haul for you guys. 70 years in Babylon. And then in verse 11, one of the most quoted verses in all Scripture, it says, God says, for I know my plans, and therefore you're good. And he reminds his people, if you seek me with all my heart, you'll find me. Now again, this letter was written to specific people to a specific time, but I think it also reveals the heart of our God. 
when things seem all disoriented, when it doesn't seem like things are going right, God says, I'm for you. I'm in charge. So here's our current state of affairs. We're all like me, trying to ride a wave that was too big for me. It's disorienting. Christianity is getting marginalized in society. Christendom is dead. But Christ is very much alive. And I don't know what's going to happen to religious freedom laws in the upcoming years and decades for us. Times may get harder for us, but God is greater. So no matter what is going on around us, we are for the city. The God of angel armies has put us right here, right now, for his purposes. And his purposes are for the good of the city. So guys, together, as City View, as a church family, let's seek the welfare, the good, the shalom of our city. Let's pray to the Lord on its behalf. And remember that we'll flourish when our city flourishes. Together, let's be an indispensable asset for the city around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and Lord, it doesn't seem like we're in control. Sometimes it can seem very bleak as we see our culture turn its back on you. As we think, see things celebrated that we know you abhor. Lord, would you give us wisdom in how to handle all this? But Lord, would you help us to look, to have our eyes on you and our eyes on the city around us. As we have our eyes on you, we remember that we serve the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, and that you have put us in this city for your purposes, for the good of the city. Lord, would you give us your perspective in everything? Lord, our prayer is that you would use us to draw many people to yourself. We pray that we would have the joy in upcoming months and years of seeing many people in this city come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and to grow in him. Oh Lord, use us for the good of the city. In Jesus' name, amen.